in the Milwaukee airport. And I, even though I've flown quite a bit, I'm not anywhere near an expert at navigating through airport um, security. There's just something about having to remove your shoes and your belt and your watch and to make sure you don't have anything metal and your electronics go here and you can't put too many things in one bin or another. And so usually by the time I make it to the point in the line where you, you have to step into the little tube with it circles around you and you have to put your arms up above your head and, and step through there, I'm just, I just breathe this sigh of relief. And, you know, sometimes they have to use the wand and, and you get to the other end at the Milwaukee airport and there's this huge sign. I mean, I am frazzled. I am frustrated i am discombobulated and i look up and the sign in front of me says this and i I kid you not it said recombobulation station (laughs) there are nice comfortable padded seats to sit in there's a place to set your bin and you can go through all of your stuff and you can get it back where it belongs it was such a blessing And I want to just ask you honestly this morning, how many of you on a regular basis are like me and you need a recombobulation station in your your life? I think it's where we're going to find the disciples this morning in John chapter 20 after the resurrection of the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection. They're still frightened. They're still confused. They are discombobulated, if we can use that word, and they're in need of comfort, assurance, and purpose. And what they were, in a sense, was they were a mess, but God was about to send Jesus to speak to them and give them their mission. It's a reminder to me, and it should be a reminder to you, that in the middle of your life, as messy as it may be, maybe messier compared to some, maybe not as messy, or maybe, in your approximation, very messy, God still works, and God still, in the midst of that mess, can organize your life, can order you with a purpose, and send you out on a mission. And I want to just talk this morning about the truth that God prepares His people for His mission by the Holy Spirit. God prepares His people for the mission that He has for them by the Holy Spirit. Now we find in John chapter 20, starting in verse number 19, that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So to set the scene, it's after the resurrection. The tomb is empty. The stone has been moved away. The linen clothes are folded. The face face cloth is laid aside. There's no body to be found. He is alive became the exciting testimony of the women of the disciples sin was conquered righteousness was secured judgment was satisfied jesus appears to mary and she exclaims to everyone i have seen the lord the disciples are gathered together the doors are locked and fear 
is in the room. Jesus came in, stood among them. We don't know how he got there, but we know the door was locked. Peace be with you. Showed them his hands and his side. Joy filled their hearts. It was their Lord. And Jesus speaks and they listen. Will you join me in prayer? Oh God, may we listen to your voice. The voice of Jesus as you speak through your word and by your spirit. And Lord, God, us this morning to see your perfect peace, your lasting presence, your unmatched power, and to see our mission and our purpose. For your name and your glory, we pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. So as we're going through the verses, the first thing we need to see is that Jesus comforts his disciples with his perfect peace. It's there in verse 19. On the day of that, in the evening of that day, the door, first day of the week, time setting, the doors are locked where the disciples were fear for, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, not an unfamiliar phrase for the disciples, for that was the normal greeting of Jewish people in that day. He repeats it again in verse 21. Peace be with you. But in this context, in this situation, in this locked room, it had a special, deeper meaning. Jesus was proclaiming the peace that he had promised, that peace that was promised by Jesus in John fourteen twenty seven, peace I am peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And what are they? They're troubled and they're afraid. And what does Jesus come and speak? Peace. But what exactly is Jesus promising when he says peace to his disciples or peace to us as believers? It has to be much more than happiness. It has to be much more than contentment. It has to be more than lack of conflict or fighting or being saved from a troublesome situation. It's connected to the fact that we have the opportunity to have a right relationship with God that leads us to be able to have a right relation with other people in the world and to have a right understanding of ourselves. It's born out of the, the Jewish concept of wholeness or completeness. That things are together and right in the way God would see them. It has with it the idea of joining or binding something together that has been separated. It's the absolute reversal of the old nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But yet in in Christ, God takes all of the fractured pieces and puts them perfectly back into place and makes peace. The peace that he promised in Isaiah, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. It's a gathering together of all of the kingdom blessings. And it describes life the way it should be when you're living under the gracious hand of God. And that Jesus brought about this peace, the Bible tells us, by the blood of His cross. Colossians 1.20 And in that one moment on the cross, that decisive moment, peace with God was established. Peace with ourselves and then peace with others. 
And Jesus made this peace by the blood of his cross. And it's present both for the disciples in that day and for us in this day by the Spirit. You see, the peace Jesus promised would be in the lives of believers by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a peaceful situation or a peaceful circumstance. It was the presence of peace in them. If you read in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul proclaims that Jesus himself is our peace. The one who establishes peace, the one who's the very embodiment of peace, the one who is peace. In Peter and first in Philippians, we see that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of peace. Jesus. Now, if you've been following along or thinking through these situations that, you know, when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he was promising his presence in our lives. Then you can see that Jesus, who was peace, was promising peace. And that peace was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit would indwell believers. And so peace would be ever present in the life of Jesus followers. Peace that we see manifested through the fruit of the Spirit. The peace that Colossians 3 tells us will rule in our hearts by faith. Murray in the Word Commentary says that the shalom that Jesus proclaimed on Easter night is the complement to it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. So in that moment when Jesus proclaims it is finished, peace was established. So he speaks peace and they're comforted. But then he takes another step and he shows them his wounds in his hands and his side. Would have been undeniable proof to these men that this really is Jesus. It's, It's not a ghost. It would have brought comfort to their hearts. Verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I love that sentence. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. When you're discombobulated, when you're frustrated, when you lack peace, there's a gladness when you can see through all of the fog of the junk in your life and see the Lord. It's sweet. It brings gladness and joy to our heart. And so the disciples had this assurance that that Jesus was bringing peace, that he was the Lord, and their hearts were, were filled with joy. But they're about to receive their marching orders. They're about to be given their mission. See, the second thing we, we can see in these verses is that the disciples were presently sent, soon to be sent. Sometimes you know, people sit around and they ask, or they say, when you, when you say, what are you doing? And they'll, they'll say this, and, and I know you've heard it, and you probably have said it, if you're like me. I'm just, I'm just waiting on the Lord to show me what to do. Or I'm just waiting on God to tell me what to do. I'm just waiting, just waiting. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just waiting. Waiting on the Lord. Looking for that direction. Sometimes I think it's ignorance. Sometimes I think it's laziness or apathy. Sometimes it's fear or doubt. But they just keep waiting for orders and miss the fact that they've already received orders. They keep waiting for God to send them on a mission when they lose track of the fact that he's already 
commissioned them and sent them out. And these disciples are scared. They're locked away and they're waiting for what's next. They're scared to death, men, because Jesus is resurrected, his body is gone, and the Jewish leaders' only assumption is, well, maybe the disciples have stole the body. So let's find these disciples and see what we can do. And so Jesus speaks again, verse 21, peace be with you. Again, an assurance of his peace, and then as the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. So there's a command of Jesus. Jesus sends them out. He gives them a mission. He gives them something to do. It's a great thing about God when he calls us as his children is he doesn't just save us, but he, he gives us a task to do. He places us in a mission field that is the place where we are. Sometimes he calls us to the place far away from where we are, but he places us in the world with a mission. And this mission is tied so closely to the ministry of Jesus. If you look at Jesus, remember, Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. He was sent in the name of the Father to do the will of the Father. And Jesus always, without exception, submitted to what? The will of the Father. Jesus depended on the Father at all times. So when we read John chapter 5, verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on His own, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So in the same way that the Father sent Jesus out into the world, Jesus is now sending His disciples out into the world. The Father sent me, so I send you. And as one person wrote, the challenge here is evident. As Jesus is defined by the mission of the Father, so the church is defined by the mission to the world. And the mission of Jesus becomes the model for our mission, that his disciples are sent in the name of Jesus to do God's will, to submit to the lordship of Christ, to be ever dependent on Christ. Read John chapter 15, vine and branches, Jesus proclaims, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with the assurance in John chapter 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is about to return to the Father and the disciples would soon have to rely, depend on the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, not long from this moment, when they're there in the upper room, the disciples would be sent out, not in their own strength, but in the power of the Spirit. And with this dual, with this dual advocates, you have Jesus in heaven praying for them, and the Spirit inside of them, they would be enabled for service. They would do greater works in the power of the Spirit. They begin to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Greater works than these will I do because I am going to the Father. With the indwelling presence of the Spirit, they would not be bound geographically and they would go out to the four corners of the earth. They would be filled with power and the source of that power would be the Holy Spirit. See, the third thing you see there is preparation for mission. 
I was in Boy Scouts till I was through high school with the uh, prodding and persistent um, encouragement of my mother. I did um, attain the rank of Eagle Scout, but it should be asterisked and have Gail Gillum down there because without her, um, I would not have completed it. After being in Boy Scouts for a while, I was the patrol leader of, of a troop and we would prepare for campouts and we would make our list. We would pack the stuff we needed. We would prepare our menu and we would show up at the campsite. We would set up our campsite. We had a wonderful scout leader and older gentleman named Porter Jones and he was methodical. He was a man of few words, but full of great wisdom. And inevitably, we would set up camp and we would be lacking something. Most of the time, something very important, like something you'd need to start a fire or, or a pot to cook in or something like that. We always got the important things. You know, we always got tent check, sleeping bag check, food check, but everything else just seemed to pass by the, the wayside. And so we would inevitably have to humbly go to Mr. Jones and say, sir, can we borrow a... and he just always happened to have exactly what we needed. And um, he'd use those opportunities to let us know that when you are preparing for something, there's more to just knowing how to do it or what you're supposed to do. It's also having the equipment necessary to do the task, to be equipped. And all the training in the world is insufficient if you don't have what you need to accomplish the task. All of the book learning we could do would be insufficient if we didn't have the tools that we needed to work on something. The computer we need to do programming. And in the same way, all of the lessons we could learn in the church, all the Bible reading we could do would lack any power if we didn't have what we truly need. It's the presence of God through His Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has been teaching His disciples. He's preparing them for what their task is going to be. And then just this three-year time, there was so much He had to teach them that He didn't get it all in, but He reminded them that the Holy Spirit was going to remind them of the stuff He taught and would teach them the things they needed to know. But he also needed to tell them that they were in need of one thing that they would have to have if they were going to accomplish his mission. And that was the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be up front. If you read most commentaries, you'll see a phrase similar to this. This is one of the most difficult verses to understand in the book of John. But if we believe Jesus' words in John chapter 16, verse 7 we would know that the Spirit wouldn't come until Jesus ascended or went to heaven. Remember, he says, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But the questions, because this is a puzzling verse, is why did Jesus speak the word to receive the Holy Spirit now, before he ascended? Why in the world would he breathe on his disciples? And what exactly was it that happened in that moment? One theory, which... I think it's probably not likely, is that Jesus at that time was actually pouring out his spirit on his disciples. That it was an event separate from Pentecost. That it was an outpouring of the spirit before Acts chapter 2 when we get to Pentecost. 
Now, what would that mean if you believe that? That would mean that there were two outpourings of the Spirit, one for the disciples and one for the rest of everybody else. But the problems you can see with that view is that, you know, Jesus in his words point toward the Spirit coming after his return to the Father. We just looked at that verse, John 16, 7. And that Jesus always spoke about it as a future event in Luke 24, 49, the passage Mike read. And even in the first part of Acts where Luke continues on, he's speaking of something as a future event. And then, I can't think of the word. And then just, if you're looking for evidence, you don't see an evidence of of a great change in the lives of the disciples between this moment in John and between you know, the time there in Acts. But after Acts 2, what do you see? You see just an amazing change and transformation as those men go out boldly in the power of the Spirit to proclaim the word of truth. Another viewpoint, and you could probably find more, that I think is probably more likely, is that Jesus, when he was acting, was acting out in a, in a symbolic manner to teach again like in a parable an acted out parable something that was going to happen not far from there and so his words would speak of something that was to come and when he breathed on them it was a reminder that the spirit would come from him now it's clear what we can see from this is that the holy spirit would be sent by jesus And if you look at this phrase, he breathed on them. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and you can see where God breathed breath into man. He gave them the breath of life. You can read a wonderful passage in Ezekiel 37 about the valley of the the dry bones where God gives the call to the prophet to, to, to call out to the living spirit, the wind or the breath to bring life into that valley of dry bones. Jesus talking to Nicodemus talks about this, the Holy Spirit as the wind. And this wind of the Spirit would bring life, bring transformation, would fill the disciples with God's power and God's presence. And this presence, the Spirit would indwell them. They would be indwelt by the Spirit. It would, his presence would be in them. And so there would be no way for the disciples to be effective in their mission by themselves. Unless the Spirit came, they wouldn't have done the things they did. And you will receive power when my Spirit, Holy Spirit comes. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They needed Jesus. He was the vine and they couldn't do anything without him. And Jesus was going away, but he wasn't going to leave them alone. And the Spirit that had walked beside them on those dusty streets of Judea would be replaced by the Spirit that would be within them wherever they went. And that promised comforter would dwell with the disciples and be in the disciples. We learned that in John 14. And as Romans 8.11 tells us, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I think that's a good thing to remember when you need encouragement, when you need strengthening, or you you feel in some way that maybe you're inadequate or lacking in the task that God has before you, that the Spirit of God that is in you is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if that Spirit can raise you, 
raise Jesus from the dead. It can give life to our mortal bodies. It can strengthen us to get out of bed when we don't want to. It can give us courage and boldness to speak when we don't want to speak, when we're operating in fear. It can provide encouragement. It can manifest God's fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And it can equip us to do everything God calls us to do. Because God always equips people that He sends. Disciples would have no power. We would have no power without the presence of the Spirit. But we can have assurance today as believers that if God's calling us to do something, no matter the size of the task, that it's the same power that was at work in the disciples, the same power that brought Jesus up from the dead that is at work in us. And that same power can give you the courage and the boldness to walk out your door across the street, talk to a neighbor, to get on an airplane and go to another part of the world to share God's love and to serve Him, or to show God's love and speak the truth all the places that we're sent. And part of that wonderful truth, the job we have, the good news we get to share is that in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That what John says in 1 John 1, 9 is true. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the writer of Psalm 103, verse 12, He has removed our sins as far as away as the east is from the west. That's the good news we get to proclaim. You see, the last thing Jesus tells His disciples is that they would go about proclaiming forgiveness. Again, we come on another challenging verse. What does this mean? What does Jesus say? And if you forgive the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from many, it is withheld. If you read that in and just read straight forward and don't think about it a lot, you think, well, okay, Jesus is giving His disciples the ability to forgive sins and not forgive sins. But I think we need to look at an important question. What does the Bible say, or who does the Bible say is the only one that can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew that. So what does Jesus mean? A.T. Robertson, if you've ever seen his book, Word Pictures of the New Testament, says this, What he commits to the disciples and to us is the power power and privilege of giving assurance of forgiveness of sins by God by correctly announcing the terms of forgiveness. In other words, when the disciples or you or I share the gospel, the truth about God's forgiveness is proclaimed. If, glory to God, somebody hears the gospel and responds to faith in Christ, by faith in Christ, they're forgiven. If another person hears and rejects Christ, rejects the truth, their sins are not forgiven or forgiveness is withheld. I think it can be as simple as that, that we proclaim this message that God can forgive. As people accept that message by faith in Christ, they are forgiven as they reject it. Sadly, they are withheld from forgiveness. It's available, but they, by their own choosing, have not received it. But we see this forgiveness is secured by Jesus. Colossians 1, 13, 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have what redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus, in the act of redemption, his death on the cross, secured forgiveness for our sins. But it's applied, made practical in our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We looked at last week this truth, that the Holy Spirit works to bring out conviction. Remember, he brings conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But that conviction always has a purpose, a redeeming purpose. That it's not to bring condemnation on us, but it's to lead us to salvation. It's to lead us to restoration. And when someone trusts Christ, when they place their faith in Christ, a simple trusting faith, what happens is the Holy Spirit washes them, regenerates them, and renews them. You can reference Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 for the specifics on that. So the Spirit spiritually cleanses believers And the Spirit is generously poured out by the Spirit. So like we learned at a young age, take a bath, use soap. That a washcloth and soap would apply cleansing to the body. In the same way the Holy Spirit applies God's forgiveness in Christ to our lives. And then he helps us to proclaim it, the message of forgiveness to others. We share the truth. All sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were all sinners, Christ died for us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That you can have your sins Forgiven. We share that truth, simple truth, imperfectly shared by imperfect people. And God does His work. His Spirit brings about the conviction. His Spirit draws people to Christ. So we proclaim the message of forgiveness to others. And then God does His work in bringing about that forgiveness. And this is what Jesus is doing in His disciples, reminding them that God prepares His people for His mission by the Spirit. He gives them His peace. He promises His presence. He guarantees His power. And our purpose, our calling in that is clear, crystal clear. We're sent out in His name. We're living in His power, His peace, His forgiveness. And we're called to share the message of peace and forgiveness. And we're always reminded that for every Christian, every provision, all that you need is already provided and the instructions that we have are clear and God's spirit is present so I have three things that with the Lord's help we would do Lord help us to first of all pledge our allegiance to you that we would devote ourselves to our king to our master and in doing that we would place ourselves, submit ourselves under His leadership to be on His mission. It's His calling. It's His commission. And we are His servants. So we pledge our allegiance to the Lord. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, help us to put our trust in You. 
Because you take that first step out when you're on mission and you're doing something for God and all of a sudden all of the doubts, all the apprehensions, all the things that you recognize that you're not. The enemy is turning up stuff from 50 years ago, from 60 years ago, from five minutes ago to tell you that you are insufficient, that you are unqualified, that you are disqualified, that you are unworthy, that you're unloved. And what in the world business do you have thinking that you're going to do something for God? Happens. Trust me, it happens. You know it happens. You think, I'm going to do this, and you're so excited, and you step out, and oh boy, here it comes. It's the lies and the attacks and the voice of the enemy speaking to you. But simply just proclaim, oh Lord, I put my trust in you. This is what I know about you. This is what I know to be true. I am your beloved child. I am yours. You are mine. You have given me all that I need. Look in the scriptures and find out who God says you are in Christ. And put your trust in God. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And then the third thing is, Lord, help us to accept our assignment. Help our assignment. Imagine if you were in the military, if you were in the branch of service, and you received a direct order that did not violate any, did not violate the law, did not have any ethical consequences from a superior officer let's just say i don't even know if it could work this way but you get a handwritten you know order from a four-star general at the pentagon and he says do this now there's not a box at the bottom you know like on mission impossible that says your mission should you choose to accept this you know you, you don't get that option you don't get to check yes or no. You don't get to make a counteroffer and say, well, well, sir, you know, I was thinking that it might be better if we did it this way. No, you get an order and you obey the order. Um, in the military, if you don't obey the order, you suffer consequences. We have an order from our commanding officer. The consequence we face is missing out on the adventure, missing out on the blessing, missing out on the fact that God may want to use you in a situation to be a blessing to someone. Which takes us back to the mess. Some of you think, I'm too messy. Or my mess is too big right now for me to be able to serve God. Because I got this stuff. And you may have a lot of stuff. If you're like me, there's always stuff. And sometimes you get rid of stuff and more stuff replaces it. And you think, I'm too messy, God. I'm too messy. I can't do this. God offers us a recombobulation station that is available as a Christian 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We step into His presence. We say, God, I feel like a mess. God, I know who You are, what You call me to do. And God, I don't know how, because it's not going to be me, it's going to have to be You. In the midst of my mess, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my sorrow, let me say, yet, Lord, I will praise you. Let me look out for the interest of others and not be so self-interested and self-focused. Let me not be more concerned about fixing myself first so when I finally get everything straight and and good, then I can go out and do something because that's not going to happen. But, Lord, fix me in the way you need to fix me to do what you need to do. Take my mess and use it for your glory to be a blessing to to others. So pledge your allegiance. 
to the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. Accept the assignment in the Lord. Find your value in the Lord. Allow Him to take what you perceive as a mess and let Him turn into a mission that He can use for your glory that will be a blessing for you and others around it. God prepares His people for His mission by the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that Your love reaches to the heavens, it stretches to the sky. We thank You that Your justice is like the mighty mountains. And Your mercy is like the ocean. Lord, thank You that all the things we are not, You are. That when we are inadequate, You are adequate. When we are weak, and we almost always are, You are strong. Help us to see that You have given us a task. As the Father has sent You, Lord Jesus, so You are sending us. Sending us to bring the message of peace and forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. To share Your your love to be partners in building your kingdom, to encourage other brothers and sisters, to pray for them, to lift them up, to encourage them and to strengthen them through our prayers and through our our words. And so, Lord, this day, help us to commit ourselves to accept the mission you've called us to do. to call on the one who equips us for the mission and to trust you as we carry out that mission for your glory. And God, we thank you that you will because you're always faithful and you're good and we can trust you. So we thank you for that, O Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.